electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan, live in New York City. Down 3,000 points one day, up 1,000 the next. This is the White House and the Fed pull out trillion-dollar plans to try to stabilize the economy. The Dow surging more than 1,000 points for a 5% gain. With the thought of hundreds of billions in new bonds being issued, yield, yields moved higher. In fact, the 10-year Treasury note yield is back above 1%. Crude oil, it got crushed again today on concerns about an economic slowdown. Oil down more than 6% to 28.60 and change. Oil now on pace for its worst month ever. And here is a stat that really sets the tone for how things have been. And it comes from our friend Ryan Detrick at LPL Financial. Today's rally marks the seventh straight session that the stock market has moved either up or down 4% in a day. That breaks the previous record of six such volatile sessions set all the way back in November of 1929. A true sign of the times, all the markets rising today. It is clear that we are in unprecedented times for the markets and the economy. But we're here for you here on CNBC with our folks who've been working tirelessly around the clock. Bob is downtown. Steve has more on the Federal Reserve's move. But most of the newsmaking action today came from inside the Beltway. So let's get to Kayla Tausch, who is live in Washington with more on the White House response. Kayla. Brian, it is an unprecedented stimulus package that the White House is proposing. $1.3 trillion in relief for businesses and workers whose revenues and wages are grinding to a halt. The Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin putting forth this proposal on Capitol Hill today to Senate Republicans. It includes, according to a senior administration official, $550 billion in direct payments to Americans or tax relief, up to $300 billion in small business aid, and up to $100 billion in targeted industry relief, and add to that an estimated $300 billion in deferred tax payments. The Treasury Secretary said the benefit to the American economy is greater than the cost. In different times, we'll fix the deficit. This is not the time to worry about it. This is the time that hardworking Americans are impacted by government decisions. That's when the government has to step up. This proposal is a third package that follows an $8 billion funding package that helps agencies and a House bill that passed last week that provides an estimated $105 billion in paid sick leave to an estimated 40 million Americans. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell today said that the Senate would vote on that bill. Federal regulators are also working to relax post-crisis bank rules to allow banks to continue lending to businesses as their earnings deteriorate and also readying a loan backstop program that could be unveiled later this week. The Department of Defense tonight said it is providing masks and ventilators and testing facilities and is considering deploying the National Guard to aid uh, in the coronavirus uh, effort here. Of course, after weeks of mounting concerns about the spread of this virus and the economic fallout, the effort across Washington 
is now in full force. Brian. All right, Kayla Tausche. Kayla, thank you very much. Now let's get down to Bob Pisani. He's at the New York Stock Exchange. He's here to talk about markets, the consumer, and I assume maybe a trillion-dollar-plus bailout as well, Bob. It moved the markets, Brian. The Dow swung in a 1,500-point range again today from its low right after the open to its midday high. But this time, the rally held, and I think it held because there was plenty of stimulus talk you heard from Kayla. From the White House, both houses of Congress, and the Fed establishing a commercial paper funding facility to buy unsecured short-term debt issued to raise funds. Today's rally felt very tentative, but it was a rally, and it did hold, and it came on lighter volume than usual. That's interesting. Volatility has also flattened out a bit. I say flattened out because the VIX remains extremely elevated, but it's been relatively flat the last several days. It was nice to see the banks up as yields shot up dramatically at the end of the day. As Brian told you, Regions Financial, J.P. Morgan outperforming the market for the first time in a while. But defensive stocks still led, this has been the story, outsized gains from consumer names like Spice Maker McCormick and Hormel Foods, General Mills at new highs, Clorox also at a new high. After a dismal few days, large retailers also bounced back, including Urban Outfitters, TJX, and Best Buy, but all still down double digits for the month. Finally, there's talk that both Boeing and the airlines will be part of that massive stimulus program you heard from Kayla. Government help sounds good, but none of those stocks rallied. What's the story there? Traders tell me there may be lingering concerns from the financial crisis when bailout programs for autos and some insurers wiped out the equity for shareholders. And that could be an issue, Brian. Back to you. I certainly could. Bob Pisani at the NYC. Bob, thank you very much. So Bob mentioned the commercial paper market. So before we get into more on the Fed and what they're doing, perhaps it's helpful to highlight first what exactly the commercial paper market is. You're going to be hearing a lot about it. Well, at the core, CP, as you're going to hear it called, is really just a fancier term for short-term loans. Loans of maybe a few weeks or months or even shorter that can help companies and small businesses do critical things like make payroll or buy the goods they need to stock their shelves. The purpose of the CP market is so millions of companies don't have to go get formal bank or small business loans every couple weeks and months when they need short-term cash. Put very simply, it's the grease on the wheels of cash flow. So how big is the commercial paper market? Well, it's big. The latest data shows it is over $1 trillion, although, believe it or not, that is actually less than it was before the financial crisis. Let's bring now back in Steve Leisman. And Steve, tell us more about the Fed the CP market, and why it is so key to keeping that grease in the wheels of the market flowing. Yeah, great explanation there, Brian. And and it was a very busy day for the Fed. What happened is people were not, the companies and the investors were not buying that commercial paper. And as you described, it's so critical to business that if they can't get this commercial paper, well, really, they can't operate. And the reason, of course, is because money markets are the ones who buy a lot of that commercial paper. They were afraid of getting drawn down. There was uh, apparently outflows from those money market funds. So a big day for the Fed answering the call of many in the market to come in and backstop this commercial paper or CP market here. Let's look at what the Fed did. One, they were created the commercial paper funding facility. That's the same thing they created back in 2008, same name, pretty much the same terms. But this time, the Treasury provided a $10 billion backstop to uh, help the Fed in case there were losses there. It could buy up to $700 billion of that one-plus trillion that uh, Brian was talking about. Some of the paper is not included in there. 
In addition to that, the Fed is going to do another complicated thing, two $500 billion of repos for the rest of the week. The reviews on the commercial paper were not that great, Brian. The, one person said, the Fed's new commercial paper facility replicates its action in 08. Welcome, but not enough. The administration's $850 billion bill is a start, but the focus on a payroll tax cut is a mistake. Another senior market participant I talked to said, it's too punitive right now. That's the rate they're charging. Nobody's going to use it. The commercial paper market is still not functioning well. Others said it may eventually function well. Brian, here's what's going on in the credit markets. The economy is being shut down because of the virus, because of actions uh, to stop the spread of the virus. But nobody figured out how to pay for it. So what's going on right now is there's concern about default and risk in a lot of credits right now. And almost every actor in the financial industry is trying to make sure that they're not stuck with those credits that will default or be at risk. And that's why what the administration is doing is so important. That's why what the Fed is doing is so important. Try to find a way to liquefy this economy and float it over the two months that it, or so that it may be shut down because of this virus. Very quickly, Steve, has anybody done, maybe you've done it, the math on the total that we've talked between the Federal Reserve, the New York Fed, commercial paper, repo operations, and possibly this trillion-dollar stimulus plan they're talking about, are we at, like, three, four trillion dollars? We could be, Brian. Um, the Fed will purchase $700 billion. Look, th th there's a difference. The reason why the counting is a little weird is because the Fed puts $500 billion on offer in the morning in overnight repo, but the market only takes down about 120, 150 of that. Comes back in the afternoon, puts $500 billion on offer for overnight repo. The market's only taking down 10, 15, or 20 of that right now. The CP market, it could be up to $700 billion according to the rules of the, uh, of the offering, but we don't know how much they're going to take. I think if you take the $700 billion the Fed's going to purchase, the many trillions in repo, we are into multiple trillions of dollars of available funds from the Fed to backstop the financial system right now. Basically the entire one-year tax receipts of the federal, of the federal government so far. Steve Leisman, thank you, Steve. We appreciate it. All right, now let's bring in Guy Adami and Dan Nathan, both here at the NASDAQ. Guy, all right, we'll start with you. In a time of incredible stats, I got another one for you from the bond market because I know you like to talk about bonds. This one, courtesy of National Securities. Today was actually the sharpest one-day move for 30-year bond yields since the year 2000. What does that tell you? Yeah, it tells me a lot. But let me just say quickly, if you allow me a minute or so, you know, if, if you've watched the show for the last 13 years, I've clearly been the half-empty person throughout the entire thing, and that's just the way I was raised on Wall Street. You know, what can go wrong will go wrong. But I'm going to be the half-full person today because I know, as painful as this is for everybody watching, we're going to get through it, and we're going to get through it on the other side better than we were when we got here. That's my absolute belief. With that said, as you know, my concern all along has been the bond market, and my, I would be willing to bet the people that actually understand this stuff would have wanted the stock market to close unchanged today or even slightly lower and the yields in the market not move as precipitously as they did. You know, the bond market to me is a big concern. So there's absolutely some solace in the fact that we traded down to in the S&P 500, effectively the December, whatever it was, 24th low of 2000 and 
I guess it was 18 or so. We, we traded down to that level and bounced. That's a good thing for you technicians out there. But again, I'll say it again. The move in the bond markets are scary. Treasuries should not move like they're moving. Now, if we can get them to stabilize, the point I made last night, if they can stabilize it, whatever that yield is, maybe it's one and a quarter percent in the 10-year or thereabouts, that actually could be a really good thing. And if you recall, on the way down, I said, listen, there's going to come a point of diminishing marginal returns in terms of yields that if we hit it, the stock market won't like. And on the way down in yields, that was 1.4%. So it stands to reason that on the way up, 1.4 better be resistance. Well, we're going to find out. All right, let's go now to Dan Nathan. All right, Dan, I think that most of the questions you're probably getting on Twitter and social media, or as I am, what are the key signs of capitulation, a market bottom, and are we seeing any of them now? Well, we are to the, to the effect that, that just the velocity of the down move in such a short period of time is, is really unprecedented, down 30% peak to trough in a month here. And, you know, we're in this market, Sully, right now where it's kind of one step forward, two steps back in a way. You know, yesterday was the biggest point decline in the Dow Jones. And today, you know, we made up a little more than half of that. So when Guy was talking to some of those technical levels in the S&P 500, that December 2018 low, we stopped yesterday just above that. That's great. Great. Um, but if we fail, then the next level below that would probably be the breakout in November of 2016 after the presidential election. And that range is down below 2200. So we might have this support pocket between 2350 and 2150. And I think that would be significantly oversold. But then I think you want to look at on the single stock level. Right. And so we know that a lot of stocks have just been absolutely decimated in such a short period of time. Well, more than, let's say, the market would tell you with the S&P 500 down 22%. We know we can look across transports and energy and a whole heck, uh, heck of a lot of other places where stocks are down 40, even 50%. Here's the one thing that I'll tell you would be a sign of capitulation in the near term would be Microsoft and Apple, two of the largest market cap companies here in the U.S., but also in the world, have really outperformed on the downside. I think um, Apple is down about 13% on the year. Uh, Microsoft down 7%, down obviously more than that from their highs. But they're still up meaningfully year over year if you go back and look at March 17th levels 2019. And I think investors might be waiting for them just to kind of give up a lot of that. And then you might kind of feel a little bit of capitulation. And then you might start seeing some of these other names that have been hit much harder, maybe in the industrial space, maybe the financials, maybe the uh, transports start to outperform as we get a little worse. Those would be some of the things that I might look for at capitulation. And then one last point, I just got to go back all the way to 2000. And one, you know, that peak to trough decline in that recession was 50 percent from the March 2000 highs to the lows in uh, October 2002. And I'll just tell you, in that time period, there were three rallies um, off of lows that um, were greater than 20 percent. So I think what my point here is. That, that you can have these vicious mm -hmm. bear market rallies here and it doesn't really mark the bottom. You need to see a confluence of events. You need to think about some of the stuff that Guy was saying in the credit markets. You need to see this fiscal and monetary stimulus work into the economy and let people feel a little bit better about the financial market. So I guess the last thing I'll just leave you with is time is going to be a really, really important part of a bottoming process um, and capitulation might be near term. I want to stick with you, Dan, and get a follow-up before I go back to Guy. Do you anticipate when we get this bottom, you've been highlighting the MAGA stocks, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Googles, that when the market does turn, 
A lot of people are saying it. Well, where's what should I buy? Do you think the the leaders of the previous rally will be the leaders of the new rally once or if it comes? Yeah, I suspect so. I think one of the headwinds to those names in particular was regulation. I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon. The other one is like, look at the moats that these companies have with their balance sheets. Look at they have with their market share. Um, to me, these are companies that will not be bailed out. So unfortunately, if we go back and look at history, um, some bad investments were buying those names on the bailout when we go back to the financial crisis. Now, long term, they ended up being good investments, but that's not what you want to make a portfolio right here of if you're thinking about getting some kind of free cash into the market right now. You do not want to buy beaten up retailers. You do not want to buy beaten up uh, airliners. Not for the long term. Near term, you know, you may get some short squeezes. But to me, I think dollar cost averaging into those massive tech names that have those monopolies, I think that's probably the way to do it. And the QQQ is a way to do it because we know that those four stocks, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon, made up about 40% of the NASDAQ 100 um, just about a month ago. You know, Guy, we look back at previous big drops in the market, whether whether it's 2001, 2008, various things. Is there any historical precedent, though, in terms of the way the market mechanics have changed? High-frequency trading, algos, passive, all the stuff we talk about. Do we expect the moves to now be quicker than they have both to the downside and to the upside than they have in the past? I think things happen faster, absolutely. I mean, 10 years, to your point, 08, 09, that's 11 years ago. Things have changed considerably, and things move a lot faster. I mean, we're seeing it in real time now. And again, I'm not here to cast aspersions. That's not what I do. But I think the fact that the market had this belief all along that somehow the Federal Reserve had our back, coupled with this advent of passive investing, led to a market that just looked past everything. And again, just for a point of reference, and this is not an Apple negative thing. I'm not saying it for that reason. But go back the weekend when Apple said their numbers are going to probably not come in based on what's going on in China. On that Friday, Apple closed in or about $322 a share. I think it was an all-time high. The next day, that Monday, the stock, I think, opened down $6, which is meaningless in terms of the move that it had seen over the last six months. And by Tuesday of that week, it was making a new all-time high. So Apple told you what was going on effectively, and the market didn't care. So, again, passive investing, the Fed put... That had a huge impact, and now we're paying for it on the other side. So to answer your question, absolutely things happen much faster, which, quite frankly, might be a good thing. Maybe this won't be as prolonged as a lot of people think. And maybe the snap back when it comes will be faster as well. Guy and Dan, thank you both very much. Important advice at a time like this. All right. CNBC, of course, has continued coverage of these historic times on Wall Street. Be sure to catch our special report, Markets in Turmoil, once again tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Right now, though, we've got some breaking news on SoftBank. Let's get more on that with Rahel Solomon. Rahel. Hi, Brian. So this is according to the Dow Jones. So Dow Jones reporting that SoftBank is backing away from part of its WeWork bailout plan. This is according to people familiar with the matter, saying that essentially SoftBank telling WeWork that it may not buy $3 billion of shares from existing investors as had been planned. So essentially what they're saying is that because WeWork is under investigation by the SEC and the Justice Department, essentially saying that those regulatory probes allow it to back out of the rescue deal that was signed in October. Again, this is according to people familiar with the matter and the Dow Jones. One thing important to note here, apparently this development, it will not affect the $5 billion lifeline that SoftBank had already agreed to give WeWork directly. Also important to note that apparently this will 
Uh, this would have allowed former CEO Newman to sell nearly $1 billion in stock. So it looks like we were uh, pull, softening, rather, pulling back on that offer. That would have given Adam Newman, again, uh, $1 billion of a share purchase. We'll see how this all plays out. Brian, I'll send it over to you. All right, Rahel Solomon on SoftBank. Rahel, thank you very much. All right, on deck on this big night, the very latest numbers on the virus spread. Plus, some good news. The biotech company that says it is closing in on a potential coronavirus vaccine. We're going to bring you the potential timeline as well. And later, small business bearing the brunt of the burden on the economic front lines. We're going to take you live with more on the U.S. economy because it is not just about stocks. It is about all business and workers in America right now. And we'll be back in two minutes. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. All right, welcome back and good evening. We are getting new numbers now on the extent of the coronavirus outbreak. Let's get back to Sue Herrera at CNBC HQ with where things stand at this hour. Sue. Thank you so much, Brian. We just got in some new numbers, 196,000 cases and about almost 7,900 deaths. Meantime, Defense Secretary Mike Esper has announced more ways that the Pentagon is becoming involved in the fight against the coronavirus. Five million respirator masks and up to 2,000 deployable ventilators are being made available for distribution by the federal government. Esper says the Pentagon is getting other requests for help as well. Right now, we have, I think, 18 states and over 1,500 guardsmen activated at different parts around the country. And so as we get requests in, we will look at activating them if we need, if we need to at the federal level or using the reserves. Macy's is following Nordstrom's lead, closing all of its department stores to help slow the spread of the coronavirus. That shutdown affects Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Blue Mercury, Macy's Backstage, and other outlet stores. Overseas in Italy, a makeshift hospital shows how that country is working to expand its facilities to combat the outbreak. Outside, tents have been set up to test and screen new potential patients. Brian, you are up to date. I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Now, for a little bit of good news that maybe we all need right now. Regeneron Pharmaceuticals said that a potential coronavirus vaccine could be coming sooner than expected. Of course, investors piled into the stock because of it. Let's get more on the details of this with Meg Terrell. Meg. Hi, Brian. Well, Regeneron is working on a unique approach that can be used both similarly to a vaccine to prevent infection and also as a treatment for the infection. And it provided an update today with a timeline for getting into human testing that's about two months earlier than expected by early summer. Now, the company's approach is to develop antibodies that neutralize the virus. They say they've now isolated hundreds that can do that. And Regeneron scientists are now sorting through those as well as antibodies from people who've recovered from COVID-19 to find the best two for a cocktail to start human trials. As they're doing this, they're also going to be scaling up manufacturing capacity with the goal to be able to produce hundreds of thousands of doses a month for preventive use by the end of the summer. Now, this is a different approach from one we heard about from Regeneron yesterday, which is to test its already approved rheumatoid arthritis drug Kevzara in critically ill patients with COVID-19. Those trials are starting now, and the idea is that drug can tamp down the immune response that might cause inflammation in the lungs of the most severely affected patients. 
patients. All of these things take time, and for the viral antibody approach, Regeneron will still have to prove it's safe and effective before it would be used more broadly. But remember, they have done this before for Ebola, developing a three-antibody cocktail that showed in a clinical trial in the Democratic Republic of Congo to save people's lives. So there is a lot of hope here. They'll be able to do it again, but it'll be a number of months, Brian, before we'll know how well it works. Yeah, and Regeneron, Meg, is not the only one. Are they, I mean, I've been listening to your amazing reporting. I know you've been working tirelessly around the clock as well. There are a number of companies that are on the, on the front lines of trying to get us a vaccine right now. Are there not? There absolutely are, and we spoke with two of them today, Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson. Uh, they both have uh, programs going on. Pfizer striking a partnership today and saying it, it plans to be in human clinical trials by the end of April uh, with that partner, BioNTech, which is a German biotech company. That's just one month behind Moderna, which is a smaller biotech company, which is partnered with the U.S. government on its program, and they dosed their first patient in a human clinical trial yesterday. So these things are going incredibly quickly, but in order to really know if they're safe and and that they work, that's going to take a year to a year and a half. All right, Meg Terrell, Meg, thank you very much. All right, we are going to hear more from Regeneron tonight, 6 o'clock tonight on Mad Money. Jim and a can't-miss interview. You're going to want to hear what they have to say, where they stand right now, and how soon something could be done. All right, coming up, one of the nation's biggest unions out with a major call to action. We're going to bring you more on the incredible move the UAW is now advocating for. Plus, more news on Boeing crossing within the last hour and why it is looking for a bailout. The details, we come back right after this. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. All right, welcome back. We've got breaking news now on Boeing. Let's get now to Phil LeBeau with the very latest. Phil. Brian, remember it was early February, and in an 8K, Boeing said it had established a term loan for $13.8 billion. And at the time, people said, well, that's kind of interesting. Well, guess what? 
little over a month later, they have dropped an 8K. And in the 8K, they say they have drawn down, completely drawn down, that $13.8 billion. That gives you some sense of how quickly Boeing is burning through cash, which leads into the other piece of reporting I have for you. We have talked with people familiar with Boeing's negotiations or its request on Capitol Hill. Boeing is seeking tens of billion dollars in government aid. Some of that would be through loan guarantees. We don't know the exact amount that Boeing is seeking, nor do we know the terms that might be established as part of those loan guarantees. But make no mistake, you don't have to just look at this chart to realize Boeing is burning through cash very quickly because it's being hit with a double whammy right now. It's not selling the max because it's grounded. And at the same time, the airline industry is under immense pressure. And that's the reason why you see so many people saying, how much will the government do to assist Boeing? And by extension, we should point out, it will assist the entire aviation industry because a lot of that money that goes to Boeing will ultimately be going to suppliers. And the concern is you don't help Boeing, you don't help the suppliers, you potentially see some of the uh, industry maybe not collapse, but certainly be damaged. All right, Phil, you've also got some big news on the United Auto Workers Union and the major automakers. What's happening there? Yep. Uh, essentially, it comes down to this. On Sunday, the United Auto Workers, talking with the big three automakers, said, look, we think you should shut down these plants. And, and the big three said, give us 48 hours. Well, 48 hours is 6 o'clock tonight. That's when the big three CEOs will be meeting with leadership from the UAW. And the UAW essentially wants them to shut down all the U.S. plants for two weeks. Think about the footprint that the UAW has. 150,000 members at Basically, 25 big three final assembly plants. We're not even talking about the dozens of other uh, big three plants that the UAW are at. They would also be impacted. And the key issue is, when do you stop uh, production? If you were a UAW member right now, Brian, look at it this way. You see that GM and Ford and Fiat Chrysler are telling all of their white-collar workers, work from home. We do not want to have people in an office environment. We want to have as much social distancing as possible. And yet 1,500 to 2,000 of them are going to go into an auto plant. So that's the concern from the UAW's perspective. If you're looking at it from the automaker's perspective, they say that they are doing, they're taking steps to make sure that the workers are as protected as possible. And if you shut down production, Brian, there's no guarantee that it comes back in two weeks. It could be six weeks. It could be seven weeks. And once you shut down production, you kill the cash flow. Because those cars, when they leave the plant, that's when they are sold. It's not when they're sold in a dealership. It's when they leave the plant because they're sold to dealers. So the real issue here is, do they shut down these plants? And if so, for how long? There's no guarantee it's going to be two weeks. And the question is whether or not it happens now. Does it happen in a week? Does it happen in a week and a half? So these are going to be some contentious talks tonight. Yeah, truly remarkable times. Uh, stories on the UAW and Boeing. Philibo, thank you very much. You bet. All right, coming up, do you think interest rates are going lower? Well, you got to think again. Rates making the biggest move higher in more than a decade today. And coming up, you're going to hear from one of Wall Street's top-ranked strategists straight ahead. And then, as we wrap up here, Asia getting set to open. We'll take you live for the setup there. The global markets remain on edge. We're back right after this. All right, welcome or welcome back. It is just past 5.30 p.m. here in New York City. And let's take a second to recap another wild day on Wall Street. The Dow gaining just over 1,000 points, a more than 5% gain, as the Federal Reserve and the White House took a twin-barrel approach to stimulus. 
The totals ultimately could be in the trillions of dollars. That means more debt would be issued, which means yields are going to go higher. And certainly they did today in a big way. The 10-year cracking above 1% for the first time in nearly two weeks. The 30-year bond, by the way, according to National Securities, posting its single biggest daily jump in yield since the year 2000. Let's talk more now about the big move in rates and what they might signal with Mark Cabana. He is head of U.S. rate strategy at Bank of America. Joining us by phone, of course, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Are you pleased with the Federal Reserve and the government response so far in stabilizing what was obviously a fairly shaky credit market? Yes, I think the actions today taken today by both the Federal Reserve um, and uh, Congress people um, and folks in the administration uh, certainly have delivered a jolt of confidence uh, to markets um, and hopefully to the broader population. Uh, so what the Fed did was they announced a uh, very unusual facility in order to support issuers in the commercial paper market to ensure that they have access to short-term cash during any type of revenue loss. Um, and that, I think, should help stabilize uh, the credit market to some extent. And then, of course, there was a very big stimulus package, which was discussed. We're still waiting on final details of that, but it shows that there will be real relief to Americans that are impacted by the coronavirus in a big way. You know, there's a lot of pushback on the use of the word crisis. Obviously, we have a health crisis. You say financial crisis, and people say, well, that's being extreme. When we look at these moves by the Federal Reserve, we're, we're going back to 2007, 2008 with these acronyms, TALF, TARP, these programs that are either being enacted or being talked about, Mark, would you say that we have a form of a financial crisis right now? It feels like one to me, uh, but the genesis is very different. Uh, remember back in 2007 and 2008, that was largely driven by issues that were associated with banks that perhaps took too much risk or took imprudent risks. The issue today is that there's a real shock to the economy, and it could be very large and very sizable. Uh, and financial markets are reacting in ways that reflect that type of very big shock to the economy. Uh, and that is having reverberations across financial markets, um, and it's causing certain stresses in financial markets that the Fed has felt it was important to step in and try and address. And I personally applaud the steps that the Fed has taken because I do believe that they will help. Are there other steps they need to take? I think so. Um, I think we're only seeing the start of it at the moment. I think that what we will likely see from the Fed in coming days is a little bit more assistance to try and help short-term uh, credit markets, uh, in particular the commercial paper and the certificate of deposit market. I hope that we're going to see a little bit more uh, assistance for money market mutual funds so that they can continue to provide very valuable outlets for cash for their investors. And the Treasury Secretary today was talking about programs um, like, you know, it's one of the alphabet soup acronyms, but TELF, um, which was implemented back in the crisis, which allowed for the Fed to lend to certain investors that could then lend into credit markets and buy certain credit-related assets. We may see something like that again today, uh, and I think that it would certainly help, and it would help try and stem the widening that we've seen in credit spreads, mm -hmm. and it should help try and improve broad market functioning, which has certainly come under stress in recent days. All right, Mark Cabana, Bank of America. Mark, a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, let's turn now from bonds to volatility. The volatility index, the VIX, the so-called fear gauge, really uncharted territory. It did close lower today, but hit its highest level in history yesterday. That's right, even higher than at any point during the financial crisis. So 
How can you protect yourself and your money in these extremely tenuous times? Let's bring in Optimize Advisors President Mike Coe, who's got more. And I guess a very simple question to start with, Mike, is the VIX came down a bit today as the market rose. Is there any sign of an all clear inequities to you? No, I don't think that seeing, you know, these it's a common thing, I think, for investors to look for things like very high VIX readings as opportunities to buy equities. And it can be very tempting to use them as entry points and think that they represent short term buying opportunities. But, you know, you identified the credit crisis as one of the historic events that we've seen where we saw very high VIX readings. And it may interest people to remember that actually the two highest VIX levels we saw, which were in October of 2008 and then subsequently in November of 2008, did not represent the absolute lows for that specific bear market, which actually occurred in March of 2009. And actually, if we go back to even prior instances, you know, we can look back to the tech wreck, for example. What we saw there, too, was that we saw a very steep spike in volatility. And we did see short-term lows, but some of those proved to be bear market rallies. And, you know, we had a lot of pain in the NASDAQ 100, for example, which fell over 80% peak to trough, uh, that that actually played out over a lengthy period of time. Now, Mark, who you had on right before, you know, one of the things he was talking about is that this is a different kind of a crisis than the credit crisis was. You know, you had very distressed bank balance sheets then. Now we have a little bit more of a liquidity problem for businesses that are suddenly just not seeing any economic activity. It's a slightly different situation. And I do mm-hmm. think that, you know, the actions that we were seeing from Washington today might prove to be, you know, positive. If we get some follow through on that, I think those are the right types of steps, trying to help individuals and trying to help businesses. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a different thing than going out and just trying to buy distressed assets to shore up a, a bank's balance sheet. All right, Mike Coe. Mike, appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Be well, my friend. All right, coming up, how small business, the heart of the American economy, is dealing with the slowdown. And, of course, do not miss our special coverage continuing tonight, Markets in Turmoil, 7 o'clock Eastern Time. We're going to give you Contessa Brewer in the seaport and show you what bars are doing and not doing on St. Patrick's Day. Stick around. All right, welcome or welcome back. It is just past 5.30 p.m. here in New York City. And let's take a second to recap another wild day on Wall Street. The Dow gaining just over 1,000 points, a more than 5% gain, as the Federal Reserve and the White House took a twin-barrel approach to stimulus. The totals ultimately could be in the trillions of dollars. That means more debt would be issued, which means yields are going to go higher. And certainly they did today in a big way. A 10-year cracking above 1% for the first time in nearly two weeks. The 30-year bond, by the way, According to National Securities, posting its single biggest daily jump in yield since the year 2000. Let's talk more now about the big move in rates and what they might signal with Mark Cabana. He is head of U.S. rate strategy at Bank of America. Joining us by phone, of course, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Are you pleased with the Federal Reserve and the government response so far in stabilizing what was obviously a fairly shaky credit market? Yes, I think the actions today taken today by both the Federal Reserve um, and uh, Congress people um, and folks in the administration uh, certainly have delivered a jolt of confidence uh, to markets um, and hopefully to the broader population. 
so what the Fed did was they announced a uh, very unusual facility in order to support issuers in the commercial paper market to ensure that they have access to short-term cash during any type of revenue loss, um, and that, I think, should help stabilize uh, the credit market to some extent. And then, of course, there was a very big stimulus package, which was discussed. We're still waiting on final details of that, but it shows that there will be real relief to Americans that are impacted by the coronavirus in a big way. You know, there's a lot of pushback on the use of the word crisis. Obviously, we have a health crisis. You say financial crisis, and people say, well, that's being extreme. When we look at these moves by the Federal Reserve, we're, we're going back to 2007, 2008 with these acronyms, TALF, TARP, these programs that are either being enacted or being talked about, Mark, would you say that we have a form of a financial crisis right now? It feels like one to me, uh, but the genesis is very different. Uh, remember back in 2007 and 2008, that was largely driven by issues that were associated with banks that perhaps took too much risk or took imprudent risks. The issue today is that there's a real shock to the economy, and it could be very large and very sizable. Uh, and financial markets are reacting in ways that reflect that type of very big shock to the economy. Uh, and that is having reverberations across financial markets, um, and it's causing certain stresses in financial markets that the Fed has felt it was important to step in and try and address. And I personally applaud the steps that the Fed has taken because I do believe that they will help. Are there other steps they need to take? I think so. Um, I think we're only seeing the start of it at the moment. I think that what we will likely see from the Fed in coming days is a little bit more assistance to try and help short-term uh, credit markets, uh, in particular the commercial paper and the certificate of deposit market. I hope that we're going to see a little bit more uh, assistance for money market mutual funds so that they can continue to provide very valuable outlets for cash for their investors. And the Treasury Secretary today was talking about programs um, like, you know, it's one of the alphabet soup acronyms, but TELF, um, which was implemented back in the crisis, which allowed for the Fed to lend to certain investors that could then lend into credit markets and buy certain credit-related assets. We may see something like that again today, uh, and I think that it would certainly help, and it would help try and stem the widening that we've seen in credit spreads, mm -hmm. and it should help try and improve broad market functioning, which has certainly come under stress in recent days. All right, Mark Cabana, Bank of America. Mark, a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, let's turn now from bonds to volatility. The volatility index, the VIX, the so-called fear gauge, really uncharted territory. It did close lower today, but hit its highest level in history yesterday. That's right. Even higher than at any point during the financial crisis. So how can you protect yourself and your money in these extremely tenuous times? Let's bring in Optimize Advisors President Mike Coe. Who's got more? And I guess a very simple question to start with, Mike, is the VIX came down a bit today as the market rose. Is there any sign of an all clear in equities to you? No, I don't think that seeing, you know, these it's a common thing, I think, for investors to look for things like very high VIX readings as opportunities to buy equities. And it can be very tempting to use them as entry points and think that they represent short-term buying opportunities. But, you know, you identified the credit crisis as one of the historic events that we've seen where we saw very high VIX readings. And it may interest people to remember that actually the two highest VIX levels we saw, which were in October of 2008 and then subsequently in November of 2008, 
did not represent the absolute lows for that specific bear market, which actually occurred in March of 2009. And actually, if we go back to even prior instances, you know, we can look back to the tech wreck, for example. What we saw there, too, is that we saw a very steep spike in volatility. And we did see short-term lows, but some of those proved to be bear market rallies. And, you know, we had a lot of pain in the NASDAQ 100, for example, which fell over 80 percent peak to trough, uh, that that actually played out over a lengthy period of time. Now, Mark, who you had on right before, you know, one of the things he was talking about is that this is a different kind of a crisis than the credit crisis was. You know, you had very distressed bank balance sheets then. Now we have a little bit more of a liquidity problem for businesses that are suddenly just not seeing any economic activity. It's a slightly different situation. And I do mm-hmm. think that, you know, the actions that we were seeing from Washington today might prove to be, you know, positive. If we get some follow through on that, I think those are the right types of steps trying to help individuals and trying to help businesses. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a different thing than going out and just trying to buy distressed assets to shore up a, a bank's balance sheet. All right, Mike Co. Mike, appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Be well, my friend. All right, coming up, how small business, the heart of the American economy, is dealing with the slowdown. And, of course, do not miss our special coverage continuing tonight, Markets in Turmoil, 7 o'clock Eastern Time. We're going to give you Contessa Brewer in the Seaport and show you what bars are doing and not doing on St. Patrick's Day. Stick around. Well, today was a tough day for restaurants and bars here and across the nation because it's one of, if not the busiest day of the year, St. Patrick's Day. Did you forget? But here in New York and other major cities, most have been ordered closed or shut down voluntarily. Contessa Brewers in downtown Manhattan with a scene that would be, Contessa, I think, hard to believe if it wasn't so real. Brian, here we are, happy hour on St. Patrick's Day. Normally, Dorland's Tavern would have these glass doors wide open and the crowd would be spilling out onto the sidewalk, Wall Street types coming down. Today, there's signs up saying Dorland's will be closed for business until the mayor tells us it's safe to open. This is a neighborhood that is already hurting. Over here, El Vigrante, I talked to the manager earlier. Look, pizza, right? They always do delivery. They do takeout. They're used to this kind of thing. He's already had to let busboys and servers go because that's how they're anticipating the impact from these shutdowns is going to be. Let's go down this street here. This is a neighborhood that was hit hard during Sandy. They've been here before. They know what it's like to be closed down and not to have business coming in. But look, you've got a wine uh, bar. How are they going to do takeout or delivery? Down here we have Jack's Coffee. This is a place where people are coming in. They're grabbing their coffee and they're moving on. But right now, looks like the ice cream shop's just the, hey, you know about social distancing, right, guys? Six feet apart. Right. Got it. All right. And then this is one of the most famous dive bars in lower Manhattan. Jeremy's Owl House has been around for a long time, and it's been through a lot. How are they weathering this storm, Brian? Take a look at the sign up here. $4 quarts of beer to go. They're doing takeout now for beer because they don't have a crowd. Dead empty. It's sad. You know, Jeremy's is the place that that sells the beer in the foam cups, I'm told, I hear. Anyway, on a serious note, uh, this is, Contessa, a day where for people that, you know, don't go to lower Manhattan, there would be, as far as you just walked, a line 
I mean, people who already were, as they say, far into their cups. This is a devastating revenue loss. Not only that, it's happening across the nation. There are at least 15 states that have ordered dine-in facilities to be shut down. And I talked to business owners and restaurateurs today who say they're, they're coming off slow January, a slow February. March was supposed to be the kickoff to spring, the kickoff to business resuming again. And instead, they've seen it just completely wiped out. Contessa Brewer in lower Manhattan, tough times, and, and it's going to be a while, but we're glad you're there, Contessa. Thank you very much. See you soon. All right, let's now bring in a familiar face and voice to many of you. But you may not know this about Tim Seymour, obviously a trader, CBC contributor, an all-around great guy. But he's also a small business owner. In fact, he owns the bar WXOU, which I would argue is the preeminent dive bar. And I mean that in a loving sense in New York, Tim. How big of a blow is this to your workers and are you still going to pay them? Hey, hey, Brian. Happy St. Patty's Day to you. Um, look, this is, you know, we're, we're going to be closed. We're going to be closed for the foreseeable. We, we, we can't do takeout of green beer today. And, and so we've got, we've got staff that we will keep on. Um, look, we, we have it better than most because we have uh, a pretty lean uh, business down there. We're a bar. Uh, we don't have a big restaurant staff. Um, but, but what I think people underestimate is the pain that the small business owner was going through before this happened. Commercial real estate prices are, are exorbitant in Manhattan. They've gotten worse, especially with lower interest rates and landlords that are now REITs that are, you know, it's a blended yield. They don't care if places sit empty, which is why you see storefronts empty in major cities uh, around the country, frankly, um, in, in major areas. So, um, you know, the fact of the matter is there, there are folks here uh, who work for us who, who rely on uh, the income that is uh, able to support uh, creative lifestyles that, you know, they're artists, they're actors, they're, they're whatever they are, um, and, and we will be closed. And, and it's a sad day. We're an iconic bar in the West Village, and today would be a huge day for us, but uh, we're not going to cry in our beer. Well, listen, I, I know that, that we are a, sort of, you know, a stock market program, but let's talk about the human side of this. There are 23 million people that work in restaurants, bars, hotels, or catering, yep. according to their yep. industry associations. We lose 20, 10, 20% of those jobs. We're adding 5, 6 million people to the jobless rolls. This is an industry which needs a fairly rapid recovery, or I would imagine you would agree some sort of targeted stimulus directly to the small business worker. Well, right now the small business is, is, has to continue to pay the rent and pay the bills. Uh, and there's, you know, so far there's really been no discussion of, of you know, I, I don't think you necessarily are supposed to go after landlords. Um, it's not their fault. Uh, having said that, um, there needs to be relief. Most small business folks do not own their real estate, and that's their biggest cost in addition to payroll. Um, so as you talked about, look, we're, we're at peak labor in this country. We're at 3.5%. We hit that 275 uh, on the last non-farm payroll. Um, and, and restaurant workers in many cases are not even counted as part of this uh, this job market. So when you think about the impact of the consumer, the small business, 70 percent of the economy, this is uh, something that that I think is is very difficult to quantify. And, and equity markets, obviously, you know, as you look at, at some of the bigger companies that, that we talk about every day on the network, uh, the infection rate peaks. And, you know, whenever that is um, and, and how how quickly it takes to get there and how quickly we can recover is going to be the determinant of of whether this is V-shaped or, or straight into recession. 
So um, I, I think the you know the backbone of this country is the small business and the small business worker, and that's the complicated part about uh, uh, where stimulus is coming yeah. through today. And I'm glad we could talk about it. You know, obviously in these times, you got to think about those folks as well. But before we let you go. You're here every day, Tim, talking about the markets. We saw yeah. a thousand point gain for stocks. A couple trillion, it looks like, will be thrown at the credit markets, the financial markets. Were you happy with today's price action? Did it signal any kind of a bottom to you? Well, again, the, the, these moves, uh, I, I think I prefer to look at it as where are we over the last few days? I, I would, if you net out that 7% move in 25 minutes on Friday, which we talked about, I thought was pretty artificial, um, you know, that. Somewhere around 2,500 here, it looks like the market is trying to find some levels. I'll let the technical guys have their piece uh, and talk about it. The things that, that today uh, are either encouraging or concerning. Um, look, at some point when you start talking about uh, you know, this type of, of fiscal on top of a massive deficit and, and, and where we were funding uh, corporate tax cuts at 3% GDP for 10 years, uh, the, the dollar's up 5% off its lows, and this is a flight to quality, and right now this is actually uh, – Sadly, probably good news. Uh, the bond market had an enormous move today. So the 10-year sold off over three points uh, and is now backed up, but on some level is showing some signs of maybe getting back to relative value and oil plum new lows. So um, I, I just think that there's, there's so many moving pieces. The most important thing I'm watching right now is credit. Uh, and if you look at the investment grade credit, uh, you know, spreads of wide to about 125 over. Uh, and I think, you know, the real risk for a lot of corporates, and this was brought up in, in, in you know, kind of focus when the discussion about $39 yep. billion to airlines who, who were buying back stock. A lot of companies levered up as they were buying back stock. Yeah, and a lot of these closed-in bond funds and bond funds that we've talked about, corporate and high yield, right. a lot of them went down today, Tim. Thank you very much, and uh, good work. Right. Happy St. Patty's. Yeah, I guess. Slancha. Thank you very much, Tim Seymour. All right. We are just a few now hours away from the beginning of trading in Asia. Let's get now to Will Kaloris, who's in Sydney, Australia, with your setup there. Will. Good morning, Brian, or good afternoon, I should say, rather. Well, the Nikkei futures are showing an implied open of around 300-point lift, but we are waiting the February trade data to come from Japan as well. Right now, the New Zealand markets are open, however, and they're showing some significant gains. They're up by over 5%. Some of this is also tied into the fact that they did inject around 4% of their GDP in terms of stimulus to respond to the coronavirus impact there. If you take a look at the Australian markets, however, right now it is showing a flat open, but at the same time, you have to remember, we generally have been following on from what the U.S. futures have been showing. We do get that reset coming through in just about an hour's time in terms of the SPY futures. So there could be some significant upside coming from the Australian markets as well. The only real downside impact that we are likely to see is because of the U.S. The oil prices falling. So perhaps the Australian markets might see some downside there, Brian. Will Kaloris in Sydney, Australia. Will, thank you very much. All right, of course, full coverage of the Asia Open is part of our CNBC special report tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time. All right, now let's talk about these markets, more in the setup. And if Karen Feinerman is actually doing any buying today, Karen, it's good to have you on the phone again. Did you do any buying today? I didn't do any buying today. I'm always looking to do buying. I thought there was a lot to like about today, um, you know, the way the market recovered from being lower in the morning and stayed up the rest of the day. There was also a lot not to like. You talked about you know, the credit markets and the LQD, the investment grade we look at. That traded terribly. Um, so that kind of concerns me a little. You know, there, there's a phrase that uh, liquidity isn't a financial term. It's a psychological one. 
And that it sort of felt like that. So I've, I always have a buy list. I'd love to buy Disney. That didn't trade particularly well today. Um, you know, they're in for some pain in so many of their businesses. But it's on my list. It's a great company. Google's first. Um, Starbucks also didn't trade well with the retail and mall closings and that kind of thing. And the mall reads traded horribly, which isn't surprising. But so the high-quality names, that's what I'm looking for, Home Depot, Google, Starbucks and Disney, but Disney is probably going to probably going to go lower. Well, you know, the mall REITs, I mean, you look at these mall REITs like Simon Property Group. I mean, number one, social distancing, that doesn't say go to the mall. Many are probably going to be closed temporarily. But at the same time, we're going to have retailers who are going to go under. If they file Chapter 9 versus Chapter 11, they could try to break their contract, get out of their leases in any way they can. These mall REITs, I would imagine, in your mind, should be avoided right now. Yeah, I, right. I think you're going to have tenants who just aren't going to pay. Even when they stay in business, just not going to pay. And that's going to be painful. To right. And if they liquidate, yeah, then they you know, can get out of those obligations. So, but Simon is, is the premier name, but the whole space. And you're going to have that for commercial tenants, too, I think. So those are also trading terribly. I mean, Bornado bounced a, a buck. Today, it's probably down close to 50%. That's a premier name. It's got a lot of New York exposure. Um, I don't know what's going to happen there. It's, I'm always looking to buy. If I had one thing to buy, it would be Google. I feel like Dan had mentioned earlier, I watched the show, about uh, what, you know, the fangs, would do they let us in the higher market? Will they lead us out? I agree with him. Very defensible positions, extraordinary balance sheets, and having liquidity is key. And they all do. You said quickly, you said there were things you did like about this market today. We need some decent mm-hmm. news. What did what you did like, like about I the liked, market today, Karen? I Well, I did like that it came back. A Tuesday turnaround a little bit. And I liked the, the administration absolutely seems all in on doing whatever they can. Fiscal stimulus and working with the fiscal and monetary. I think that um, they're all in. Karen Feinerman joining us by phone. We appreciate it, Karen. Be well. Thank you very much. All right. So because things are so stressful, every day now we're going to try, when we can, to end the show with some good economic news or good market news or at least, I guess, what passes as good news these days. So let's kick it off with this. And I was posting about it last night on the Twitter, but let's show you. Looking at traffic patterns in Shanghai, China. And for that, we're using TomTom's Traffic Congestion Index. Now, this index looks at traffic jam trends over seven days and compares it to last year, the same seven days over the year. Now, the blue is the last seven days. The orange is how it looked last year, pre-COVID-19, when everything there was fairly normal, minus, of course, the trade war. Now, look at what we're seeing. The line between the blue and the orange is getting closer. In other words, Shanghai seems, at least Monday through Friday, to be getting back to a semblance of normalcy during the work week. The weekend, the big drop-off there, still slow. Not 100%, but perhaps that is a preview of better things to come for us as well. Happy St. Patrick's Day. MAD starts now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.